around, okay? Um, so uh, we, were, we were away last week, so I didn't, I didn't want to start something the week before uh, and then take a break. I wanted to wait till we were back together uh, for a longer period of time. So we're going to start this new series this morning. Um, and the book that we're going to look at this morning reminds us of something very important. It reminds us, thank you, Levi, it reminds us of the coming day of the Lord, okay? Now, as you think about that, you have to ask yourself the question, what does that all entail? What is that all about anyway, the coming day of the Lord? Well, I'll tell you this, it's a future event. Hasn't happened yet. It's been predicted from all the way from the Old Testament to the, through the New Testament. The coming day of the Lord is something that you and I look forward to. We don't look forward to it with fear and trembling. We look forward to it with great anticipation because we know where we'll be and who we will be with, okay? And that's the key to not fearing the coming day of the Lord. And we'll learn that in our study throughout this book. That's not the, the biggest clue, though, for our, our study this morning. This book that we're going to look at this morning, uh, it, it mentions the command from God to Noah to preach righteousness to the world before destroying the earth by a great flood upon the earth. Now, I know you're probably thinking, I, I got this one. It's all sorted out in my mind. I know what one it is. We also read in this book about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the rescue of Lot from the wicked city of Gomorrah. Is that solidifying the book in your mind? It might be. The author also communicates about the creation of the heavens and the earth and the flooding of the earth. Okay, now you're really zeroing in on a particular book, aren't you? You're figuring it out. Um, You got it? You think you got it? Raise your hand. Okay, let's keep going. Um, The author of this book is one who was known to walk with the Lord and to shepherd the people of God. In his letter, the writer deals with such themes as the return of the Lord for his people and a warning concerning false teachers. This man is keenly qualified to give such a warning as he was one of the early followers of the master teacher Jesus and commissioned by Jesus himself to be part of those who would start this new thing called the church, his body. Did I just throw a monkey wrench into your thoughts? Were you all thinking maybe it's Genesis? Okay, you were thinking it was Genesis. You're wrong. Sorry. Um, <clears throat> This man, one of the twelve, spent three years of his life with Jesus. He saw how the master lived, loved, and labored for the glory of his father. This man, Jesus called the rock, was told by Jesus that a, tr- uh, that a truth that he uttered, this man uttered, and the truth is, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus also said to this man, you are Peter, and on this rock, the truth that we just mentioned, I will build my church. Now, all of you are probably thinking, pastor, what are you talking about? Are you losing it? We just studied First Peter. We did. We completed our study in the first Peter. But there's another book that bears that man's name. It's very complicated. It's called Second Peter. 
All right, so why not finish the letters from this man named Peter, okay? Peter is going to communicate to us some more very, very important things about living life in the church. How do you and I live in the church? How do we serve in the church? How do we also have in mind and keep in mind the thought of the coming day of the Lord? There are some very impressive verses, some verses that we probably have put to memory that come from the book of Second Peter. So as you are turning in your copy of the scriptures to Second Peter this morning, uh, I want to show you something up on the screen, and it won't be the title because that would have given it away, right? All right, so up on the screen, you, some of you know that I love charts, okay? Uh, and I have a chart this morning for you that summarizes the book of Second Peter, okay? Uh, and in this book of Second Peter, we will see, sorry that it's, it's kind of small, but uh, we're going to see from the book of Second Peter this morning that Peter is... Uh, very intent on communicating truth to us about how to grow as a Christian. In chapter 1, that's what it's all about, growing as a Christian. Peter speaks of the importance of the virtue and obtaining a divine nature through faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and love. He speaks of even his impending death, and he wants to encourage his readers to grow in spite of the fact that God is going to take him home. Not to depend on him as the teacher, as the preacher, as the leader, but to grow even expecting his impending absence. And Second Peter, he spends a lot of time talking about false prophets and false teachers. We might think that Peter would have been very well written for the day and age in which we live in today. We have a plethora of false teachers. We have a lot of people that are going around calling themselves prophets and telling this and telling that. You know what? I have a question for those people. Would they be willing to submit themselves to the test of a prophet? You know what the test of a prophet is, right? If what you say doesn't come true, you get stoned. I don't think most of the prophets today would be willing to submit to that test. Okay, And Peter's reminding them that you have to make absolutely certain who you are following. uh, The chart says, Peter describes the mind, attitude, and actions of false prophets and false teachers. Can I tell you this briefly? They're not in it for the glory of God. They're in it for their own glory, for their own sake. He famously describes fallen angels and describes the misery of those who fight against the saints of God. In 2 Peter, the last chapter of the book, he turns his focus to the day of the Lord, okay? The day the Lord will return to the earth and judge the earth, okay? In response to the people who would deny the second coming of Christ, and there's a lot of people today in our world who call themselves Christians and leaders and spiritual leaders who deny the second coming of the Lord. Some said he's already come. Well, you know what? No, he hasn't. We would know it if he came. And I promise you, he has not come, okay? That is still to happen. Um, Peter provides a description of the events surrounding the day of the Lord. He states that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. He, He wants us to be people of faith, and he wants us to have hope for the future. You and I don't have to live in fear of the future, but we have the hope of Christ being in control and ruling and reigning like he said he would do. 
Also on the chart here, we see the date in which 2 Peter was written, around 67 AD. We see the, the people that the book is written to or the people who will benefit from it, all ages, okay? Um, his current age that he was writing in and the age that was to come, which we are in now. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind, although there has been doubt in some people's mind who wrote the book, and we'll deal with that in just a little bit. But let me give you the overview. It says, this epistle was written by Peter Again, to the Jews and Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles, we're included in that. We're part of the Gentile group. Here's the blessing, though. In Christianity, Paul reminded us that there's neither Jew nor Greek, right? We are all one in Christ. But both, whether your background is Jew or Gentile, you can learn from what Peter has to say. He wrote to Jews and Gentile saints. He wanted to discourage people from listening to false prophets and teachers, but also encourage them amid persecution, okay? You see, when you and I are finding ourselves in a place where life is a little difficult, we're facing maybe some persecution, who do we rely on? We can't find hope in these false teachers. We find hope in the one true God and the way he has communicated to us through the pages of his word. He goes on to say, um, times had grown perilous for Christians amid Nero's persecution and threats of death. Peter spoke of the time of the Lord's return his glory, that's the Lord's glory, and power, and the judgment yet to come. Those things are all going to unfold uh, in the future when the Lord comes back. So having communicated just a glimpse of what we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks and probably months, um, let's go ahead and ask God to bless our time together this morning in his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you today. We thank you so much for your love for us. Peter is going to talk about that love that you have for us and how you demonstrated that love. Uh, Father, we're grateful to be the recipients of your grace and your peace and your mercy that you have poured out upon us. Uh, and again, Peter's going to talk about that as well. And so as we look at some of these things, they're not going to necessarily be new things for us. But Father, they are going to be things that give us hope and give us comfort and help us to want to move forward for your honor and for your glory. Father, we're thankful for your word that reminds us and promises us that Jesus is coming back. First, he's coming back to catch us up into the clouds to go to be with him for all of eternity. And then... Father, after we go through a, a series of events that you have planned for us, like the marriage supper of the Lamb, preceded by the, uh, the judgment seat, Father, and, and then when all of that is done, we will come back with our Savior Christ for that coming day of the Lord to rule, to reign, to judge the earth. What a glorious time that is going to be when the promises that were made to your people are fulfilled, and we're grateful to be able to be part of that. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's jump into 2 Peter chapter 1. Our text this morning is going to be the first four verses of 2 Peter chapter 1. So would you stand with me and read together from the screen, I think it's up there, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. Peter says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. 
as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. All right, you may go ahead and take your seats. Um, As we look at our text this morning, um, we are going to understand and see that God wants us to grow as Christians, as believers. And, And he doesn't want us to remain stagnant. He doesn't want us to be lagging behind. You know, when, when we bring a, a baby home from the hospital, newborn baby, um, we think that they're so, such a blessing, they're so cute, they're so beautiful, and they're so full of the future and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, we, we certainly don't want them to stay that way, right? We don't want them. Now, okay, if you like that stage in life, the baby stage and, and all of that, maybe you do want them to stay that way a little bit longer than they do. Um, our daughter-in-law, Katie, sent us a picture, I think it was on Friday, with our youngest granddaughter. She had something in her hands, and she was just bounding down the sidewalk, or at least to look like, because she was kind of in stride. Uh, and Katie said, where's my baby gone? Um, yeah, they grow up, okay? But we want them to grow because what would be the opposite of not growing? Dying, okay? None of us want that for our babies, okay? And Peter doesn't want that for the child of God either. He wants us to be growing. So we're going to look this morning or at least start looking at traits to grow as a Christian. Now, I don't know about you, but I planted a garden in the spring. Can I tell you this? I think it's the worst garden I've ever planted. We thought we would get beans. You know what we got? Stringers and runners. Didn't get very many beans this year. I don't know why. The the beans that we planted said they were green beans and, and, and yellow beans, but they sure didn't produce like all the other green beans we've planted in years gone by. We planted rutabaga. And I pulled some out of the ground about a week ago to put in a stew. They were awful. I don't know why. We, have, we just, Barb just pulled some beets last week. They look pretty good. Um, hopefully, they're going to taste pretty good. All right. our, our garden did not grow. We planted pumpkin and we planted squash. No, we got big yellow flowers with no fruit. Who knew that you had to have, I mean, I guess I kind of know, Boy flowers and girl flowers. How in the world do you tell when you put the seed in the ground what it's going to be? You don't, right? You just depend on uh, God to take control and for nature to do what nature is supposed to do. That didn't happen in our garden. Obviously, it did in some gardens because we got lots of pumpkins around uh, and we got lots of butternut squash. We didn't get any. We planted watermelon. We got two, about this big. They tasted pretty good, so they tell me. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, our garden didn't grow this year as it has in years gone by. So much so that we're asking ourselves, do we really want to do this again next year? I don't know, probably. All right. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll try something a little bit different. But you see, as Christians, we need to be growing in our walk with the Lord. We need to be growing in our knowledge of this book. 
Okay, we don't want to be content with where we are and what we know about scripture. We want to know more and not just for the sake of packing our head full of information. We want to know more about this book because it transforms our lives. It's the only thing that can. So Peter says you need to grow as a child of God. You need to understand what God wants you to understand. You need to be becoming more and more like your savior, Jesus Christ. So in the opening verses of 2 Peter chapter 1, we are introduced to the author, to the recipients, and to, and to some things that are true of believers because we are in Christ. We are not out there on our own, doing our own thing. As a child of God, you and I, we are in Christ. He is our Lord. He's our Savior. He's our Master. Now, the stuff we're going to learn this morning is pretty amazing stuff. Uh, and Peter opens up with some, some stuff that should get us very excited, very thankful for who we are and whose we are. You see, people that are saved by the grace of God are striving to serve others. That's what you and I should have as a desire in our heart, to serve one another. Pe people that are saved by the grace of God, people that are faithful to the calling of God in their lives. Peter was writing to encourage them and to encourage us to press on and to be faithful even when things are difficult. You've probably heard that old saying, when the going gets tough, the tough get going, okay? Peter's take on that old saying is something like this, when the going gets tough, trust the Lord, rely on Him, keep being faithful no matter what, continue to press on. I, the first pastor that I really remember, uh, one of his favorite sayings was, keep on keeping on. Keep on keeping on. And that's what he did for many, many years in his service for the Lord. And that's what we should be doing as the children of God is keep on keeping on. Well, let's take a look at verse 1. We've already read it. And in that verse 1, we see, first of all, Peter, the author. Okay, The author is Simon Peter, Simon Barjona, if you will, Simon the apostle, Simon the disciple, Simon the fisherman, Simon the follower of Jesus Christ. We read it right there in our text, Simon Peter, a bondservant, he identifies himself as the author of the text. Now, there are people who have, down through the ages, disputed the fact that Peter was the author. They want to say that, oh, no, somebody much later than Peter wrote this book. No, Peter, did, Peter wrote the book. It's not somebody later on. It wasn't in the first century like some people would have you believe. It was written by the apostle Peter. It has passed the tests of canonicity, uh, like all the other books in the canon of Scripture. Um, in fact, it's a, it's, a, it's a parallel book with another short book in the New Testament, the book of Jude. Jude and Second Peter deal with false teachers. They, they, they almost tell us the same thing just from, as you would expect, different um, writers' perspectives. We get that from Jude and Peter. But they were written in for the same purpose, to warn believers, to warn followers of Jesus that there are people out there who want to present themselves as prophets of the one true God, but they're really not. And, and Jude has this great phrase, this great line. He says in his book that we must earnestly contend for the faith 
that was once for all delivered for the, to the saints. We must be active in our contending for the faith, not passive, but on on the attack, on the offense, if you will, about defending the faith that was delivered to us. We'll get into what that faith is in just a little bit. But Jude and Peter deal with this idea of those people who want to lead the church astray. And can I tell you this? There has never been a more convenient or an easier time in history to lead the church astray than the days in which we live. Everybody has a platform. We have a platform. Our, our preaching goes around the world. We have people in Africa. We have people in the UK. We have people in different places around the United States that are watching our live stream. Everybody can do it. That's why it's important to make sure that what we are presenting, what we are preaching, what we are teaching is the absolute truth that comes from the pages of Scripture. The scriptures, as we have said over and over and over again, must be our authority, our only authority for faith and practice. So it's safe to believe that Peter is the author of this book and that this book is rightfully placed in the canon of scriptures. Why? For the learning of the church of Jesus Christ to become more like the Savior and more what God wants us to be as a church that is reaching the lost. It's imperative that we remain true to the calling that God has placed upon us as a local church. So what else do we find out about this guy Peter in the first verse? Well, we find out that he's a bondservant. Now, we've talked about this word before, this word bondservant. It's used of one who, becomes, um, who chooses to become a servant to and for the sake of others. Now, if we're honest, probably... Being a servant isn't something that we're all signing up for. I must say that we have a lot of servants in our church, and I'm thankful for that. We have people who sign up to clean the church. That's a very, I'm going to say this word not in a bad sense, but that's a very menial task, right? Most people don't come in and say, oh, what a wonderful job somebody did cleaning the church. Now, if you don't do a good job, they notice it, Okay. But that's something that must be done. We have people all summer long that sign up to mow the yard. And can I tell you this? I was talking to, and I don't know if he's watching, sometimes he does, but I was talking to the Preble Town historian this last week, uh, and he told me, he says, hey, I appreciate how you guys always keep your place looking nice. And I said, well, the guy who's in charge of our building and grounds, that was when we built the building, he said, we must be a testimony. We must make sure that our grounds look good and that people don't drive by our church and say, oh man, I wish they'd take better place to that, better care of that place. He says, well, you, do guys, you guys do have a good testimony in, in the keeping of your, your building. The property always looks good. Thank you, Doug, for instilling that in us and all you others, and I'm not going to go out and name people because I'll leave them out, but everybody that helps make our church look good in our community. It, it says something. It enhances our testimony. And that's part of serving. And, and so thank you for being a servant. Peter says, I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Why was that so important? Well, that's because he was following the example that Jesus set, that his master set, that the one who had poured his life into these guys 
he set that example of being a servant. We read about it. We've talked about this many times in the book of Philippians chapter 2 where Paul says this about Jesus. He took upon himself the form of a bondservant, a doulos, if you will, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Jesus was a bondservant. He chose to serve others. He chose to put his life on the line for the sake of others. Peter was called to service by this Jesus who set the example. Peter accepted that call and took seriously the call to shepherd and to serve the sheep of God that God had entrusted to his care. A bondservant. He goes on to say not only is he a bondservant, but he's an apostle. Now, we talked extensively about the office of apostles when we studied Peter's first epistle. We concluded in our study there that the office of apostle was an office limited to the time of the early New Testament church, and it's really no longer in effect for today. Um, That's one thing that we dealt with a lot in South Africa, because we had the old apostolic church and the new apostolic church, and every... Apostolic church that started up new. They they had advertisements. They had painted on their windows. They had uh, brochures to hand out. Uh, such and such a church starting with Apostle so and so as the leader of our church. Really, Apostle so and so, and I would always shake my head. Uh, and and there are no apostles for today. There's nobody that can meet the qualifications that were required of apostleship in the scriptures. Number one, there's nobody that old, okay? Because an apostle had to see Jesus. And an apostle had to be called personally by Jesus Christ. It was a literal face-to-face calling of Jesus to the apostle. You say, well, Paul never experienced that. Um, is this road called Damascus? It, pretty was, it was really face-to-face. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Okay, God. And you notice Saul's response there. Lord, Lord, what is it you want me to do? He he had a face to face. And so much so that all those that were traveling with him fell down and hid their faces. They came face to face with the living God that day. Okay? So when I say that there's no such thing as an apostle today, unless you're reading from the apostles in the pages of Scripture, that is true. Peter was a genuine apostle. He was truly committed to the living word, Jesus Christ, and to the written word handed down to us by God through the Holy Spirit. Jesus called Peter, he commissioned Peter, and he empowered Peter to start the church, to lead his church, and to help that church grow. Peter, the author of 2 Peter, is an apostle of Jesus Christ, and we would do well to believe that and accept that in faith, and to follow the example of allowing the Holy Spirit to lead us like the Holy Spirit led the apostle Peter. He wants us to study the word. Peter received this word from the Holy Spirit. He wrote it so we could read it and study it and apply his word to our lives so we, like David, could let it direct our paths. Peter is the author of 2 Peter. We also see the people or the readers of Peter's letter. As we learn about these readers, the cool thing is that we find out they are a lot like us. Or maybe we're a lot like them, but either way, we're very similar. We see here, Peter calls them people of faith. He says, 
I'm writing to you people of faith, those who have obtained like precious faith with us. Okay, so uh, as a person of faith, what does that really mean? We've talked a lot about what faith means around here, right? And I'm not going to ask anybody what, excuse me, what the definition of faith is, because we all know that faith is believing that God is able to do what he says he will do and ordering our lives accordingly. So what I do want to ask you this morning, though, is where do we find in the pages of Scripture what it is that we are supposed to believe and what it is that we're supposed to order our lives accordingly. How do I find that? Where do I find it? And, and what is God doing to make that possible in my life? Just what do we use to order our lives? So I'm going to ask that question. If I'm going to be a person of faith, what do I use to order my life accordingly? God's Word. Amen. God's word. We don't use our thoughts. We don't use our emotions. We don't use what other people necessarily say unless it's coming from the pages of scripture. We use the pages of scripture to order our life accordingly. The word of God. The second understanding, there's two understandings of this word faith. And we, we've dealt a lot with the, the, what we might call the subjective definition or understanding of the word faith. But let's talk this morning about the other, the objective idea of this word faith. I like the way Strong's defines it. He says, that which is believed, it's doctrine, it's the received articles of faith. Now, uh, I've already quoted to you the book from the book of Jude where Jude says uh, he's writing, he wants the people to understand why he's writing his short epistle. He said, I really wanted to write to you about this amazing salvation that God has given to us. I really wish I could write to you about that, but I can't do that. Even though I really want to write it, you know, remember when you had to write term papers? I, I remember writing one in ninth grade. Um, we had to, and, and so the, the, the teacher assigned who we were writing about and, and some, for some reason I got chosen or the, 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 the term paper I had to write was about Raphael. I don't even remember what he did. Some sculptor or something like that. So I remember going up to, to Mr. Zappia and I said, Hey, can I write my paper on Raphael Septione? He looks at me who, by the way, was the kicker for the Dallas Cowboys at the time. No! Well, why not? His name's Raphael. That's not the right one. I didn't get to choose which Raphael. He told me, so I had to write about that. Sometimes we have to kind of learn things that are not necessarily in our bent, if you will. Okay? You see, I've, Peter said, or Jude says, I have to write something, and it's not really what I want to write about, but I know I have to write about it because it's what God gave me to write about. And this is what he says, I found it necessary to write to you, appealing to you, begging you, encouraging you to, to do what? To contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend for the faith. Now, when I was growing up, my, my grandfather used to he used to be a boxer. So, and this is of course before pay before pay per view. Okay, he would have hated that. Um, 
But you, the, the, the big fights, you know, like Muhammad Ali fighting against whoever, um, they would have been on TV. Yeah, yep, yep, TV, okay? Can you believe that? You didn't have to pay anything extra to get it. You could just tune the channel in and you could watch the fight. And he, and he for, somehow he knew these guys. He'd watched like, them warming up and sparring and maybe into the first round. He'd pick the winner. He'd tell you, that guy's going to win. And he knew who the contenders were. What made a person a contender? It was somebody who put the time in, who put the energy in, who put the effort in, who worked at becoming a number one fighter. He knew, all how, he knew how to do it. He wasn't, by the way, a big fan of Muhammad Ali because Muhammad Ali didn't really throw punches. He knew how to stay away from punches. That whole rope-a-dope thing, Muhammad Ali was one of the first guys to come up with that. Jab and duck and get away from the hits and all that kind of stuff. Grandpa wanted somebody who would go out and hit you. That's what he did. And I can tell you what, even when he was an old man, if he hit you, you knew it. One day I came, I came home from college and he was sleeping in his recliner. You know, I mean, you, he was snoring. He was gone. And I walked in and I just tapped him on the feet. Hey, Grandpa. And it startled him. Man, he came up out of that recliner and in one shot, boom, right in the chin. I was like, whoa, what was that for? And he said, oh, I'm so sorry. You startled me. But he could hit you. Okay, you see, a contender, he's one who's put in all the effort, all the time, all the energy. He's ready to defend himself. Jude says that about you and I. Peter agrees. We must contend for the faith. We must put our energy, we must put our all into defending the truth, the scriptures, the word of God. We are people of faith. Those who believe God is able to do what he says he will do, and we order our lives accordingly. So that makes us people of faith. But we are also people who live by faith. The received articles of faith that was handed down to us through the apostles. We are saved by faith, and we live by faith. People of faith. Peter goes on to say, not only are we people of faith, but we're people of righteousness. So let's think about righteousness for a bit. We need to start the discussion by thinking about our own righteousness and what it looks like. I would go around the room and ask you what your righteousness looks like, but it would probably be a very similar story. Because we already know what our righteousness looks like. Isaiah tells us what our righteousness looks like. What does it look like? Anybody want to volunteer that answer? Filthy rags. Our righteousness looks like filthy rags. We spent some time cleaning out the garage, or what, maybe a third of it? Not even? Okay. But anyway, we came up with a lot of filthy rags. Some of them were so bad, I said to my wife, I said, are we washing these or are we just throwing them away? Filthy rags. You know the problem with a filthy rag is once it's filthy, you can't use it to clean anything because all it does is spread the dirt around. It makes more dirt sometimes. Okay? So our filthiness is like that. It's like dirty rags. So where does my righteousness get me? Nowhere. What does it earn me? Nothing. Trouble really is what it does. If I think I'm good enough, I usually find out very quickly that I'm not. Okay, so this idea of man's righteousness 
The problem with man's righteousness is it's determined or it's defined by human standards. It's seen as, here's, here's man's righteousness, it's seen as being morally true or justifiable. You know what the real problem is, though, with man's righteous standards? They always change. What is considered morally right today, years gone by, no ways, wouldn't consider that morally right. I mean, things that are in our world today are not morally pure and clean and good. It's, it's shifting, it's changing. But this idea of conforming to the particular standard, it's hard to do when the standard's always changing. God's righteousness, the standard doesn't change. Have you noticed that in our society, they keep, I mean, the absolutes that we grew up with, those of us that are like in our 50s or older, those absolutes that we grew up with, Society has done their best to get rid of those absolutes. Now they call them different things, like the common core math. Two plus two is four. How do you know that? Because I memorized it. I don't have to go around Robin Hood's barn ten times to find out that it's four. I know it because it's true. It's a fact. It doesn't matter what two things I take here and these two things I take here. If I put them together, I always have four things. I don't need all that other nonsense to make me doubt the process of understanding that I still have four things. It is absolute. When you take two particles of hydrogen and combine them with one of oxygen, what do you get? Yeah, water. Every single time you get water, no matter what. It's an absolute. You know what it is? It's science that you can trust. Trust the science that's absolute. Don't make up your new science. Don't give me this nonsense of other things that aren't proven by science. When you come up with true science and we have real science, you trust the science. You know what you get? In six days, God created heavens and the earth, and the seventh day, he rested. God said it. Science proves that. It's not this, well, if you put all these things in a bag and shake it all up, you're going to end up with this. No, you're not. God said it. It happened. It's true. That's the science. Trust the science. Okay, It's not a changing standard. God's righteousness, it doesn't change. The standard of God's righteousness is always the, always the same. Philip Wyea says it this way. He says, righteousness is the quality of being right in the eyes of God, including character, our nature, conscience, one's attitude, conduct, our action, and command, our word. Righteousness is therefore based upon God's standard because he is the ultimate lawgiver. You see, God gets to determine what is right and what is wrong because he made everything and he gave the law. He set up the laws of thermodynamics, all seven of them, I think it is. He set it all up. The world works on his timetable and according to his plan and exactly the way he designed it. 
It's his standard. In other words, man's righteousness will never measure up to the righteousness of God, which is required to spend eternity with him. If I want to spend eternity in heaven, I must measure up to God's righteous standard. In myself, I can't do it. But in Jesus Christ, I can. The question is, why do I need Christ's righteousness imputed to me? Because my righteousness won't cut it. I love the answer from gotquestions.org. It says, we need the righteousness of Christ imputed to us because we have no righteousness of our own. We are sinners by nature and we cannot make ourselves righteous. We cannot place ourselves in right standing with God. We need Christ's righteousness imputed to us, meaning we need his holiness before God credited to our account. I can't be holy in the things I do. I can only be holy because God makes me holy through Christ. So Peter's telling us that if we are people of faith, then we also are people that have the righteousness of God. Woo! Isn't that amazing? If I am a person of faith and my faith is based on this book and I believe this book, I'm committed to understanding and knowing and practicing what is in this book, then guess what? I have God's righteousness imputed to me. My righteousness is God. Take that in for a moment. I'm not talking about man's righteousness that is based on shifting standards. I'm talking about Jesus' righteousness that is given to me. And when is it given to me? It's given to me to the, the day that I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The day that I realize I am a sinner and I am on my way to a Christless eternity, I confess, I repent, and I trust in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross of Calvary, and I am born again that day. I get the righteousness of Christ. Can you say it with me? Hallelujah! Hallelujah for what God has done for me and for mankind. You see, a guy by the name of Chris McClarney sings a song. You might have heard it on the radio. It's called Hallelujah for the Cross. It goes like this. I would be hopeless without your goodness. I would be desperate without your love. Slave to the darkness if it wasn't for the cross. You have won me with your kindness, chased me down when I was lost. Where would I be if it wasn't for the cross? Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. I was a prisoner. Now I'm not. With your blood, you bought my freedom Hallelujah for the cross. The last verse, all my shame was met with mercy. Now your mercy will be my song. And oh, the glory, oh, the power of the cross. And by your stripes I'm healed, and by your death I live. The power of sin is overcome. It is finished. It is done. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. I was a prisoner, now I'm not. With your blood, you bought my freedom. Hallelujah for the cross. Oh, man. The cross is what brings us the righteousness of Christ. It takes my sinfulness, it takes my sins, it washes them away, it covers them. It doesn't just cover them up, it cleans them. It's a clean cloth, wiping my heart clean, washing it all away. And now I am white 
as snow. Why? Because of the power of the cross. Any goodness, any righteousness that, that I have, it doesn't come from me. It doesn't come because of what I've done. It comes from the finished work of Christ on the cross. His righteousness for mine. We sing it in a song called His Robes for Mine. His righteousness for mine. What a great exchange. In theology we call it imputation. In life we call it blessing and grace. Well, we got to keep moving. That was the biggest part of the message, by the way. It's kind of like when you go to sight and sound. The first act, you get most of the stuff. second act kind of just wraps it all up. Verse, or our second thing we want to look at is Peter and his prayer in verses 2 and 3. Peter's prayer here is nothing uncommon for him or any of the other apostles. Peter's greeting in 1 Peter was the same. It was, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. To the Galatians, Paul wrote, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. In fact, in every letter that Paul wrote in the New Testament, he begins with the prayer of grace and peace for his readers. Peter does the same in the two letters he writes. Here's a thought about that. These men of God, these apostles are praying for their readers, followers of Jesus, to have more and more and more grace and more and more and more peace. It's not simply that they're writing about grace and peace out of vain repetition. But I think what they're saying is that we can never have too much of God's great grace And we can never, ever have too much of the peace that passes all understanding. So let's talk briefly about this dynamic duo, if you will, that Peter and Paul both pray for the followers of Jesus. He prays for grace. Grace. We've often defined this word as unmerited favor. Not only is it unmerited, but it's also unmeritable. And that's a very accurate definition. But let me give you a longer, more detailed explanation of the word. Again, it comes from Strong's Dictionary of of the Greek words in the New Testament. Strong's defines it like this. It says, The absolutely free expression of the loving kindness of God to men, finding its only motive in the bounty and benevolence of the giver, unearned and unmerited favor. You see, God has it all, owns it all, knows it all, and whatever he gives to us is a result of his grace. Peter wants the followers of Jesus to know this amazing grace and that it's an ongoing gift from the hand of God. Aren't you glad that every Sunday if we wanted to, I know my wife won't agree with this, but every Sunday if we wanted to, we could sing the song Amazing Grace and it would be just as fresh to us today as it was last week and next week as it is this week. Because the amazing grace of God never, ever, ever, ever runs out. It just keeps going and going and going. It's boundless, it's bountiful, and we always have access to it. Peter prays it for his readers, and if he were alive today, he'd pray it for us. That we might know the absolute free expression of the loving kindness of God finding that knowing that its only motive is the bounty and the benevolence and the loving kindness of our great God. God's amazing grace. 
Not only does he pray for us to have grace, but he prays for us to have peace. Now, we all know that peace is the absence of war, right? That's on a national, a nation scale. But we also understand that on a human scale, that peace is the absence of dysfunction or disharmony. For those of us who are born again, it means that we have peace of mind. It means that we have tranquility and that that peace of mind and that tranquility arises from reconciliation with God and an understanding of his divine favor. Again, that's another whoo, hallelujah. You and I have this peace of mind. We have this tranquility available to us. You know why? Because we have been reconciled with God. We have been made right with the creator of the universe. And more importantly than that, we have been made right with the one who will judge the world. And in our case, the judgment has already been made. It's already says on our account, satisfied by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus stands at our account page and says, I've paid for that. Already taken care of that. Forgiven. I stand forgiven at the cross. We call it, or I called it, the dynamic duo. This dynamic duo is something that God wants as the substance of salvation. He wants it to be multiplied, to come in an unending, abundant stream to those who follow him and who follow his ways. This peace that we have comes from God. Not only do we have grace and peace, but Peter talks about power. He reminds us that this power that God has given to us enables us to do what we've been called to do. Aren't you glad that God doesn't call the fit, but he fits the call? If he's called you to do something, he will give you the ability and the power and the authority to carry it out. He doesn't just say, hey, go do this, and makes us figure it out on our own. He's given us what we need to do it. Not only do we have grace and peace, but we've been granted access to this power of the great, our great and almighty God. Verse 3, let me just read it for you again. It says, as his, notice the, the, the adjective I think it is, his divine power has been given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. This verse is amazing. The key about the power is that it is God's power, not man's power. Peter calls it divine. What is it that this power does for us? This is where the amazing encouragement comes in, okay? It provides sufficiency for the child of God. Everything we need in life, everything we need to become godly people, is available to us through this power from on high. God has given us divine power. And that divine power makes it possible for us to have a a life that honors God, a life that is marked by godliness. Now it's important not to skip over the next phrase because it tells us how we get this grace and power. We get it by increasing in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. You see, the word knowledge is not simply a head knowledge. It's more of an intimate understanding and even a relationship. 
John MacArthur says this about this knowledge we're talking about. He says, it is rational, objective knowledge of God through his word. Now, if you've been around Calvary Baptist Church very long, you know how serious we are about the word of God. I love a further comment that MacArthur makes about this knowledge because it it helps us understand even more about the grace and peace that is abounding in our lives. He says this, the knowledge that brings salvation derives not from feelings, intuition, emotion, or personal experience, but only from the revealed truth based on the gospel preached in and from the word. Can I ask you to do something for me? That if we ever have somebody who stands up behind this pulpit and preaches to you their thoughts, their opinions, and and fails to ask you to open this book, can you ask them to leave? Because if they're giving us something that doesn't come from this book, we don't need it. Especially from this desk or this table or whatever you want to call it. We must always preach the word of God. We must stand on the word of God. Now, I'll tell you, you've seen the 10 years that we've been here. Yes, it's been 10 years. Nine, we're in our 10th year, okay? Um, That we've been here, we've changed some methods, haven't we? We do things a little different than we did 12 years ago. Or you know what? We do things a lot different than we did when I was here 25 years ago, or however long it was. 30 years ago? Okay, 30 years ago. We don't do things the same, and that's okay, as long as we don't change the message. We must stick to the book. We must do what the Word of God, we must live and die by the truth of God's Word. This knowledge that Peter's talking about is based in him who called us, the one who brought us to new life for his glory and for his virtue and for his honor. All right, we're going to close up with verse 4. Uh, and I, I don't even know if you can, can take all of this in because it just keeps getting better and better. Verse 4 says, By which we have been given, or by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these, these promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature. So look at it. We got this divine power, and now he's talking about a divine nature that we have. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Uh, the precious promises, we don't have time to cover them all. Um, but let me just tell you this. Peter describes these promises, and if you look at other versions, if you go back to the original languages, what Peter is saying here is these are valuable promises, that's our word great in the English text, and these are magnificent promises, or they're the greatest promises that could ever be made. Now, as I said, we don't have time to discuss them, but let me tell you what Peter probably has in mind. He talks, he's talking about spiritual life. You and I have a promise of spiritual life. Outside of Christ, we're dead. We have no spiritual life. You hath he quickened who were dead in your trespasses and sins. Okay? Spiritual life. That's Ephesians 2, uh, all of Ephesians chapter 2, also Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 13. He talks about resurrection life. John eleven twenty five. What does Jesus say? I am the resurrection and the life. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we call it the resurrection chapter. We are pitiful people if Jesus didn't rise from the dead and if we don't have the same hope. 
We got, we got resurrection life that is a promise from God. We have abundant grace. We've already talked about grace some this morning. John 10.10, 10, Romans 5, Ephesians 1. Uh, those, things talk, those verses talk about the grace that has been given to us, and it's in full supply, not limited. How many times have you gone to Walmart in the last year only to find the shelf empty? God's grace is abundant there's no, there's no supply chain issue with God's grace, okay? It's always there. Peter probably has in mind joy. Joy, Psalm 132, verse 16, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and he goes on, okay? Strength. God has promised to us strength. David talked about it in Psalm 18. The prophet Isaiah talks about it. I'd ask you to quote it, but we don't have time. Isaiah 40, 31. If you're weary, if you're, if you're just struggling, what do we have? The promise from God, we will mount up with wings like eagles. We will walk and, and not faint. We will run and not be weary. Man, what, what a great blessing to have that strength from God. Instruction, Psalm 32, verse 8. John 14, verse 26. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay? You want to know what to do? You want to know where to go? Jesus is the answer. We have wisdom in Proverbs chapter, in fact, of all of Proverbs. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally and abradeth not. We have wisdom at our disposal. It's a promise from God. Here's one that you might, uh, I don't know if you can take this one in. But we have the promise of heaven. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. John 14, 1 through 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, we'll get to that. And then he talks about eternal rewards. 1 Timothy 4, verse 8, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the, righteous ju- which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, not only to me, but to all who, what? Love his appearing. Oh, does it get any better than that? Those are some pretty amazing promises. No wonder Peter says they are great and magnificent. They are precious promises. It, it, it gets better. Partakers of a perfect nature. Think of those promises that we just mentioned. In all of these promises that are prepared for us, they're granted to us, and you know why they're given to us? So that we can have a nature like our Savior's. And that doesn't mean a future nature like Jesus. That means we can have it now. That's the writing, that, that's the wording that Peter uses. He, the verbiage here from Peter is not talking about a potential future nature. He's talking about a current reality for the child of God. He says here that we are partakers of the divine nature. This word partakers, it's often translated as fellowship. One, it's a sharer in something. It's a partner in something. Here and now you and I are partakers of the divine nature. Jesus took our old and gave us new. We are new creatures in Christ. The old is passing away. Behold, all things are becoming new. Jesus wants us to reflect the relationship that we have with him, showing that we are partakers of this perfect nature 
And then lastly, we have the pleasure of escaping corruption. And I wish we had more time to develop this, but the clock is already gone. You see, because we have this divine nature now, this perfect nature that has been based on those amazing, precious promises, we know and are certain that we will not face death. That's corruption. We have everlasting life. We have eternal life. This verse is similar to what Paul said over in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where he said, being confident of this one thing, that he who began a good work in you will do what? Perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Again, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. It's not dependent on me. It's what God will do and is able to have, well, actually has already accomplished by his death on the cross. You see, Paul and Peter both were confident that God would complete the work of salvation in the day of Jesus Christ. Peter's going to talk about it in chapter 3, the day of Christ. You see, we've escaped the danger, the death, and the corruption. It's the end result of the fallen state inherited through Adam. We've escaped that. That's no longer ours. That's not what we're going to end up like. Instead, we're going to end up like Jesus. When I see him, I shall be like him because I will see him as he is. One more time. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Today we started something that we actually started several months ago, looking at some very important things that the first preacher of the church age wanted the followers of Jesus and even the members of the church today to know and to live out during the good times and the bad times. Peter knows that he's going to write about persecution. He's going to write about trial. He's going to write about difficult times. He's going to write about having to submit to things that you don't really want to submit to. He writes about those things, but first he lays the groundwork and he tells us about these precious promises, these truths that are ours, and the things that we can hold dear to our hearts, and that will help us get through those difficult times. I hope you'll look forward with me to the study of Second Peter as we think about growing as a child of God, being aware of the realities of false teachers, and then be thinking about the amazing coming day of the Lord. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and, I don't know, man, stoked about your word. It's just so amazing what you have made available to us through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, those promises that we didn't really spend a lot of time talking about, we just hinted at them. Uh, uh, Father, there's nothing better than that. And we're so thankful that you have made those promises to us. Lord, we know that we didn't deserve them. We know that we could never, ever buy them. No matter how wealthy we might be, we can't buy these promises that are listed here uh, from the pages of Scripture. But you have given them to us through your Son. Father, we want to say thank you for Jesus and thank you for all that he has done. Thank you for the fact that he went to the cross. Thank you for the fact that he took our sins upon himself. Thank you that you gave his righteousness to us What a blessing that is. So, Father, we say thank you, but we we really understand and realize that that's not enough. So we ask that you would help us to live our lives in a way that honors you and that glorifies you, that fulfills the calling that you have placed upon our lives to represent you in this world. Father, we tell you this morning we love you, and and, and remembering that we only love you because you loved us first.
But we're so grateful for that love. We ask that you'd help us to show that love to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.